0: Hello and welcome to our podcast. I'm Dr. Mark White, and today I will be discussing some observations made while teaching interns and how post-clinical analysis of their work by faculty revealed some shortcomings, not of the students, but of academic insight. This is called PT Students Cure Chronic Shoulder Pain Complaints and Eight Patients Present Findings and Get Grilled for What They Did Not Do. So Let's get into this. Several years ago in my private practice, I worked with PT students as a clinical instructor. I have worked with students from around the country and internationally from a variety of different schools ranked in the top five and down to the middle stratum. Not that such rankings have much merit, and that's a topic for another time. The interns have all been variously talented with strengths and weaknesses like all of us, what they all had in common was enthusiasm to do well, and even better, to do the right thing for the patient. I suspect my clinical work with them was a bit different than they had experienced before, and their candid observations quickly made it clear to me that this was true in more ways than one. When they arrived at this particular episode, I was eager to introduce them to a different treatment perspective, one steeped in sciences of anatomy, biomechanics, pathophysiology, clinical observations, practical applications, and more, what we call mechanobiology, and which is embedded in a biopsychosocial framework. They also did not want to overwhelm them. It is enough to get oriented the first few days and accommodate to a new setting, new procedures, and new revelations about practice. By the time these students came to me, They already had some full-time clinical experiences behind them. I had a reasonably full schedule, one that allowed me to both see patients and explain to the interns what I was working with, why I was doing what I was doing, and how, procedurally, I was going to elicit healthy adaptive changes around the core underlying problem that presents as the driver of patient symptoms. I did not give them a lot of details from my perspective, but just enough to hint at what lies beneath appearances. All was going as planned until one of my former patients decided to stop by to say hello. She did not know I was taking students. But after a quick introduction and explanations about her conditions I had treated and fixed, she pulled the students aside and told them her story, which included past physical therapy, treatment for different problems, each resulting in incomplete recovery, and how, when she came to see me, I fixed her. She told them they should pay attention and listen to me. I did not know this at the time. Then, unexpectedly, another former patient stopped in to say hello. Then another, and another. It isn't unusual for former patients to stop in and say hello. We have a family atmosphere. Everyone knows everyone else they have met while attending their physical therapy sessions, and many new connections and friendships have developed over the years. Then another former patient arrived, and like the rest, debriefed the new students. I was getting uncomfortable. I was worried the students might think I put the patients up to coming in and chatting about the successful resolution of their problems, which I did not do. Invite them, that is. But it was also a real moment, one that could provide a glimpse into what is possible, as told by the patients themselves. As it so happened, this all occurred within about an hour of our lunch break, I finished with my patients and went to speak to the new interns. They were clearly amused by the experience, but I wasn't sure what to make of it. It was spontaneous and unexpected, so I asked them what they were thinking. They told me something I thought was funny, and it has stuck with me ever since. When asked about what their thoughts were regarding what my former patients had to say, one of them remarked, We felt like we are in an infomercial. Everyone was so enthusiastic and supportive. I asked them if anything like this had ever happened at any of their other clinicals or with any of their classmates. Their simple answer, no. Over the next several weeks, the students had the opportunity to observe what I do, listen to my explanations and descriptions of rationale based on basic science, the research literature, or in-house clinical research, perform their own patient encounters, and discuss their ideas, treatment plans, and prognosis, all while continuing to observe and participate in elements of care with my own patient load as I transitioned them to their own patient loads. One such case, a great teaching example, involved symptomatic supraspinatus calcific tendinitis in a patient with a three-month history of symptoms. I am specifying that it was symptomatic because it has been demonstrated that many patients with calcific tendon changes do not hurt. This patient did. Normal healthy tendons do not share these features. Thus, the tendon changes were deemed problematic. Despite this, the patient responded quite well to treatment, so well, in fact, that the surgeon was surprised she no longer had a surgical candidate, a patient, for her to cut on. I discussed with the interns before treatment began the tendon changes we expected to occur as a result of our treatment, and the patient, who was quite curious, decided to schedule a follow-up x-ray to re-examine her shoulder when her physical therapy treatments were complete. Her follow-up radiological examination revealed that the calcific tendinopathy had resolved. No trace of calcification remained. Her surgeon commented, I've never seen that happen before. Another example, a patient with severe knee OA at the patellofemoral joint who experienced pain with any squatting, stair climbing, transitional movements, i.e. up and down from a chair, and so on, who experienced aching pain at night and who did not respond to past treatments at a different clinic, Made clear and steady progress in my clinic while performing activities the interns were unfamiliar with, but which, nonetheless, I was having the patient perform as part of a standard approach we use to treat these types of problems. In fact, the interns were so curious about what was happening that they called their friends at other orthopedic clinics to find out what they were doing for this common problem. They discovered that the other interns were having patients perform fairly standard rehab work much of which is described in the scientific literature and which seemed to be helping, but which had not yielded large enough changes to definitively indicate real progress had occurred. But with little to no objective criteria that was measurable, their friends could only guess that perhaps not enough time had gone by to realize improvements to the degree that we were observing in our patient, who had a nearly identical history, presentation, and physical exam, minus some important tests that they did not know how to do and which are non-standard to begin with, but which yield important and useful information. Over the same span of time, our patient progressed by leaps and bounds and was eventually discharged in excellent condition, while the friend's patient languished with slow, minimalistic changes over time. If you've one of our latest podcasts about the 5% rule, then you will know what I mean. Next, the interns had the opportunity to see work that I was doing with a patient with severe rotator cuff dysfunction and shoulder pain related to a chronic rotator cuff tendinopathy. To their surprise, the patient improved rapidly. The entire span of treatment was about three and a half weeks. Most of the treatment was accomplished with a patient performing a custom home exercise program. Adherence was extremely high with good treatment fidelity, with a patient rating of home exercise compliance, and activity modification complies better than 90% each. So, after witnessing these changes and more in a variety of patients with a multitude of disorders, the natural curiosity of the interns asserted itself. They said that they had not observed these kinds of changes before, or even heard of such methods, and the measured changes in patients exceeded what their friends were observing, which led to a fruitful discussion of the reasons behind the methods how and why they differ from what is often taught, and the commonly expected results that are observed clinically when such methods are used. The problem for the interns at the time was largely that the clinical reasoning process had not been taught regarding specifics of treatment program design. And although much of the science of psychology, anatomy, biomechanics, and pathophysiology was known, The useful associations that allow connecting the knowledge to treatment was missing. At best, some treatment techniques were taught, but not how to analyze a patient problem in context to important history and examination findings, and then connect that or any other appropriate and best treatment techniques to resolving the problem. It is at least as important to understand why we should do something particular which is almost wholly unexamined in any depth, to stimulate healthy adaptive change in a patient as it is to know the anatomical structures we intend to work on, in what way, exactly, and what the expected results should be. This is quite often where things get fuzzy in the logic of what to do and why. This reality is reflected in increasing numbers of studies and commentaries that point out the lack of clear treatment descriptions and rationales in our profession's scientific literature. This is a topic I have spoken about before on this podcast, and one which I will revisit. So, to help the interns learn more about our clinical rationale and treatment choices, and more particularly a process they could use that would be helpful throughout their careers, I had them participate in a clinical research project. They were assigned the task of working with and following up eight patients with chronic rotator cuff-related shoulder pain and produce a written report describing their efforts. My goal was to give them a process they could use to tackle any problem they might have to deal with in the future, even if it was something they had never seen or heard of before. With my guidance, their participation in this project gave them the opportunity to put into practice everything they learned in school, with special emphasis on scientific thinking rooted in the basic science and working up to application, i.e. vetting, in the Darwinian crucible of real-world testing where strong ideas survive. This was critically contingent upon sound methodology, lest we fool ourselves. When they were finished, they saw the obvious results, superior outcomes, both objectively and subjectively, when compared to results culled from their own review of the literature. More importantly, they saw this quantitatively. Their outcomes were also better when compared to their peers in other clinicals who were seeing these same types of patients as well. Furthermore, because of their efforts, they knew this topic extremely well. Maybe it was the realization that methods exist beyond the published literature, which nonetheless does produce at least some beneficial results. Maybe it was the empowering realization that they had participated in a project that not only aided their understanding of precisely what to do and why, in the presence of clinical findings that are associated with and predictive of success that really grabbed their attention, But at the time, my sense was that their demonstrated outcomes, because of what they learned to do and execute properly, resulted in what I had hoped for. A deeper understanding of the interconnectedness of information we learn in school, learn from the published research, and learn then from the subsequent practical application of that information, plus the knowledge of the results it produced, and it was all integrated at a profound experiential level. Knowledge was no longer theoretical. It was applied. It was practical. It produced quantifiable and excellent results. When their clinical internship was complete, it was time to return to school, along with their peers, and discuss their experiences. The interns presented their literature review and research project findings. They were the only ones to do so. Several days after it was over and they had had time to digest the reaction their presentation generated, I asked them how it went. Good, they said, but they also informed me that they were surprised and a bit baffled about how their findings were received, particularly by faculty. What stood out most was that, despite the presentation of objective, quantified measurements with use of valid and reliable tools demonstrating excellent outcomes compared to the research literature, their work was questioned. Of course, there's nothing wrong with questions, but I had the impression they were taken aback by this, as if their results were suspect. They had presented their work Including detailed history and examination findings, discussed treatment rationale, some of which was translated from the basic sciences, and talked about the outcomes demonstrating that their work with this group of patients was superior to what the bulk of the research literature indicates is possible. Rather than discuss what they did that was effective and why, they were instead grilled about all the things they didn't do. It felt like the attitude was forget about how good your results were which we are suspicious of anyway let's talk instead about what you didn't do and why you should have done it maybe the faculty were sensitive about what they taught seemingly being tossed aside in favor of a different approach but let's test these ideas in the clinic and see if they have merit some do some do not As a clinician who reads the scientific literature, conducts clinical research, and who respects the evidence-based process, I am also aware of its limitations. In this case series, a cohort of patients with the same diagnosis and treated with a program informed by clinical practice, the basic science, and understanding of current gaps in the published literature, achieved excellent and exceptionally fast recovery That was validated with accepted outcome tools to include well-studied patient surveys, active range of motion measures with goniometry, forced dynamometry testing, and more. To illustrate the point further, a clinician whom I consulted with to help set up her own private practice asked me about insurance rejections of continued care for patients with chronic shoulder complaints related to rotator cuff tendinopathy. I asked her why insurance was rejecting payments for continued care. She said they were not improving enough over time, although they were improving. I know what the literature says, but I didn't know her numbers, so I asked her how long patients were in treatment. She replied, sometimes three to six months or even longer. And that was to achieve minimal but detectable change. She asked how long I was taking with my patients with the same problem. I told her that to achieve full recovery, we averaged three weeks. Her eyes widened. Unlike academic faculty, who asked about why certain things were not done, she asked about what we did. Hers was a pragmatic, solutions-oriented mindset. It was not threatened by perceived failures or anything else. It was motivated instead by seeking success, in this case, for the patient's benefit. This isn't to take anything away from academicians. I respect what they do, it's difficult, and I know the job comes with many practical constraints, but the problem remains. And while I was not present when the review of the students' research work occurred, the impression I was left with by the students themselves when they told me about their experience was the problem I am talking about, an apparent lack of insight regarding the realization that maybe some of what is taught in school is not as important as many instructors believe it to be. This is true both in the formal academic setting of PT school and in many clinical rotations. It may make sense on paper, but out in the real world, some things do not prove their merit. Thus, they get discarded in favor of something else that does demonstrate greater utility. As Dr. Stacy Dusing said recently at her Mailey lecture, only about five to seven percent of academicians are engaged in any sort of clinical practice. Thus, their expertise in this area is lacking. In addition, of those with PhDs, less than ten percent have board certification. The fastest growing group of clinicians with board certification are DPTs. Around seventy to seventy-five percent are board certified. Thus. This clinically-oriented latter group has more patient care-specialized knowledge and expertise than the PhD-trained scientists among us. This type of disparity isn't only true in the field of physical therapy. Research indicates it is also true, for example, in medicine and nursing. This is a problem, and it seems likely this is why the students received the reaction that they did. Practice informs those of us who are paying attention to pragmatic, not theoretical, realities that must be dealt with. When I was a student, faculty members were fond of saying things like, we have to be comfortable with ambiguity. Their perspective was informed simply by the reality that there is much we do not know. I agree there is much we do not know, but I am decidedly more comfortable knowing then not knowing. That's why I became a clinical research scientist. I have many unanswered questions. The goal was to improve myself so that I could be better able to help my patients recover. Just like the clinician I mentioned earlier, the focus was not on what was not done, but on what was done. Why? Because it works. The main takeaways from today's talk are one, in the absence of guiding evidence, use your training, your background knowledge and experience, and devise a scientifically sound solution. That's why we are trained at the duct core level. Not every problem has been solved, so you can simply look it up and apply the appropriate treatment and get the best recovery. Two, we can all learn something useful, even academic faculty who have the opportunity to debrief students returning from clinicals. In this case. The interns learned something important, that is, information, when applied, that made a difference for the patient and for themselves. They demonstrated its utility, and they were eager to share what they learned. Three, the interns demonstrated proper use of the scientific method. When applied to patient care to solve a problem, it really opened their eyes, and it did so in a way that formal academic training Cannot. 4. The interns demonstrated good use of information they were taught in school, but realized its shortcomings. Without some baseline level of knowledge, their education, and especially a comparison point, the published literature, their conversations with fellow students on clinical rotations, and their conversations with former patients, it is difficult to realize one's short-sightedness. 5. The interns also demonstrated growth beyond the limits of their formal academic training. That last part, to me, was the real success. It marked potential for the emergence of an autonomous practitioner with a growth mindset. One who was prepared to go out into the world and solve the kind of problems that result in making more patients better faster, while doing so more objectively, more reliably, and safer than ever before. I'm Dr. Mark White. That concludes our talk for now. Thanks for listening. And, as always, may you and your patients be well. That's all for today.